Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome once again to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. We're all about conversation with creative people who have a lot to say and a lot to offer. And in some cases, it's people who make us laugh, which is so important. My guest today is good friend, comedian Jimmy Tingle. He's got a very special take on politics and life in general, always leaving his audiences really happy. Jimmy's also an actor, a producer, a writer. He ran his own off-Broadway theater for many years, got a master's from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and even ran statewide for lieutenant governor in Massachusetts a few years ago. He heads up an organization called Humor for Humanity. We'll talk about that. And to quote the New York Times, Jimmy Tingle is more than a comic wit. So cheerfully intelligent, he makes his audiences optimistic in the face of reality. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Let's talk with him now as we welcome Jimmy Tingle to join us on Mike. Jimmy, I want to start with a question that I ask other people in the comedy field. Who were your influences? Because we all have them when we're kids. Who did you look up to? Well, as a kid... I just loved all the all the silly stuff, the honeymooners. I mean, we used to watch that with the family uh, on Sunday nights. Jackie Gleason and Art Connie, I know, that <laughs> and was the great. June Taylor dancers. Right, we used to watch that. And my family has a great sense of humor. My mother always had a really good sense of humor. My father was a big laugher. He loved all the all the silly sitcoms. Uh, you know, uh, McHale's Navy, Goma Pile, the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> I mean, that's how I first really got into uh, paying attention to any comedy, you know, con contrived comedy or let's say right. entertainment, official entertainment. Well, we um, grew up in the same era when Ed Sullivan was the place where you saw yeah. stand-ups for the first and only. I mean, there were no specials on HBO. There was no HBO. So you had to wait for Sunday nights, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I, I mean, I saw the you know, Ed Sullivan and the Honeymooners there, but I don't remember any stand-ups personally watching at that time. I was pretty young also. Yeah. Um, um, let me think. The first stand-up, I'll tell you, the first stand-up that I saw that, well, first of all, you got all the Boston guys when I started. Uh, my influences were really more family and friends mm. and the Boston comedy scene of the early 1980s. Um, I would say, you know, a lot of comics are heavily influenced as they evolved with, by George Carlin and, and Richard Pryor and people like that. But mine personally were the Boston comics and the and family and friends that I, that I grew up with. That was largely my influence. Right. The Boston comic scene in the early 80s was amazing. And so many guys, you included, yeah. went on to have great careers. Uh, Stephen Wright and uh, Steve yeah. Sweeney. And I mean, there's so many, Don Gavin, I mean, so many of these guys. And, uh, and it, it was yeah. it was a tight community. You guys were, were, the, were the real deal back then. Yeah, there wasn't a lot going on with uh, comedy nationally. It was not the boom that it is now. It wasn't an official uh, uh, 
college course like it is now at Emerson, you know. So the people that came out of the Ding Ho and the Comedy Connection and the, I would say, 79 to pretty much 89, you had, like you said, Steve Wright, Paula Poundstone, Lenny Clark, Steve Sweeney, Mike Donovan, Mike McDonald, uh, Bobby Goldthwaite, uh, Brian Kiley, who went on to write for Conan O'Brien, uh, just a, a bunch, Bill Broadus, who, who is now teaching at Emerson, Mike Bent, who's now teaching, um, excuse me, Bill Broadus is teaching at BU, uh, Mike Bent teaching at uh, Emerson, uh, just Lauren Dombrowski, just who went on to Mad TV as a producer there. So a lot of Dennis Leary, mm. uh, I'm, I know I'm forgetting people, <laughs> Jack Gallagher, just ton, tons of yeah, folks that yeah. they came out, some are household names, some are not. But uh, yeah, it was a really tight community and it was very organic and it was not polished and everybody was just making stuff up and going with what they thought was funny. But you epitomize the Boston slash Cambridge zeitgeist, if I can use that term, because everybody knows where you're from because you work that into your your material a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, that was something that the Boston guys did and still do so well, giving Boston its own identity through the comedy, I think. Definitely. Not only its own identity to the Boston comedy fans in this area, but nationally, it has a very good reputation because nationally, after the boom happened initially in the 80s, then came the 90s. And I was telling you before the show, before we started recording, I just did a podcast with Gary Goleman. And Gary Goleman was of the 90s, uh, era and out of the 90s came Gary Goleman, Bill Burr, Dane Cook, mm -hmm. Louis C.K., um, you know, uh, Bobby Kelly. I know again, I know I'm this, I'm leaving people out, but those are some of the names that came out of the 1990s who were really and continue to be very, very formidable uh, forces in, in, in the comedy scene nationally. So they all uh, graduated, but they did something that a lot of us didn't do. I, I personally did, but they left town at a certain time, right before they were peaking. After they learned, they left town. Tony V is another one. Oh, he yeah. and I were talking the other day how a lot of these guys did the smart thing. They left. They went to New York. They went to L.A. So when they were doing it 10 years, they were in a professional scene where you could, you know, you go to Catch a Rising Star or the comedy store in LA and there are potential managers agents uh network executives who are there looking for talent mm. uh if you stay in Boston 10 years later you're not seeing network executives <laughs> in the in the in the uh, audience in Boston you're seeing avid comedy fans and people who love it but it's a it's not a network it's not really a uh an industry town, right, right. but it's a great place to learn. But as we speak, you have dipped your toe in a big way in the national scene. We'll talk about 60 Minutes too, and, and being on late night TV really does catapult you from local hero to a national name in some cases overnight, doesn't it, Jim? Yeah, ab absolutely. And that's exactly right. Uh, I personally moved to New York in 87 and 88, and I stayed there for five years. And in those five years, I did an, an HBO half-hour special, uh, did The Tonight Show with Johnny, um, did various, got on the Montreal Comedy Festival, did Edinburgh Arts Festival in Scotland, because it's an industry town and the industry's there, so all these opportunities are there for you. Uh, and 
with the exception, I would say, in terms of the Boston scene and uh, discovering talent was when The Tonight Show uh, comedy booker, Peter LaSalle, came to the Ding Ho, and I think it was 1983, and he wanted to see an audition. He wanted to see 10 of the top people in Boston, 10, 12 of the top people. And Barry Cremens, who was the booking agent at the Ding Ho and the great comics, political satirist and hero and friend uh, to all of us, uh, put together a team, you know, a, a slate of comics for Jim, uh, Jim LaSalle to, excuse me, Peter LaSalle to look at. And uh, that's where we saw Stephen Wright for the first time. Mm -hmm. And he saw Stephen Wright and plucked him out. Huh. And like a week later, he was on the Tonight Show with Johnny. I think it was about a week later. And uh, and then a week after that, he was back for a second appearance with Johnny, which yeah. was highly unusual. Very unusual. And yeah. Johnny asked him over to the couch on both occasions, which was highly unusual. So it was a real breakthrough moment, not only for Steve Wright, but for the Boston comedy scene in general, because he just brought all of a sudden everybody was elevated when steve made that uh appearance how surreal is it for somebody like you to find out that you're going to do the tonight show with the man i mean the idea that you're watching this guy and a uh, whole of america's watching this guy he's a legend explain how it worked for you i don't know if you made it to the couch or not but maybe you can tell the story sure uh they, I was in New York at the time. Again, this is just one of the benefits of living in an industry town. And they, uh, this was in, I think it was 87. Yeah, it was 80, 88. And uh, they were looking for someone doing topical humor, topical slash political humor. Anyway, long story short, I got wind of it. The club owner called me up and said, Jimmy, Jim McCauley, the booker is coming to the to stand up New York uh, on Tuesday night, and he wants to see some people. You have to come. You, they, I really think you would. He would like you. So I went, and he really liked it. And that started a about a, about a two or three month process of giving them five to seven minutes of th that they could use on national television, and that was very exciting. We did some sets in New York. I went out to L.A., spent a few weeks out there, and he would come with me, and we would go to the comedy store. We would go to the improv on Melrose Ave there in Los Angeles. We went out to the, uh, I think it was the Comedy and Magic Club that Jay Leno worked out on every Sunday night. We went out there, and we did sets, and he helped me arrange a set that was uh, conducive to what they want for network television. You can't... Even if they want political humor, the first thing out of your mouth can't be uh, a divisive political joke. <laughs> mm. It's got to be something more autobiographical and something that would, um, you know, it just warm the audience up to you, particularly before you did anything of, you know, political nature or topical nature. I was a fan and I actually met him, Mort Saul, mm. the late great satirist. And I remember talking with him when I interviewed Mort many, many years ago about, you know, how far do you take it when you're doing politics? In this environment today, Jimmy, people are clawing at each other over the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> Americans yeah. are beating each other up. But you take an interesting approach. Uh, it's a gentle, fun approach where you're poking fun at things that deserve to be made fun of. I've never seen anyone walk away from a Jimmy Tingle show saying, oh, I didn't like that guy. He was too one-sided or left or right or whatever. What's your philosophy yeah. behind what you do? 
Well, mine has evolved, Jordan, because in, back in the day, you could, um, like when Mort saw, we had him at the theater when I had the theater in Davis Square. He was there for, in 2004. We had the unconventional comedy convention when the Democratic Convention was in Boston. And we had Mort Saul and Barry Kremens and we had uh, Louis Black and Janine Garofalo mm. and a host of political comics there, A. Whitney Brown. But anyway, uh, you know, it it used to be that there wasn't the 24-hour news cycle, as you know, and people were tolerant of different points of view. Even if you didn't like it, they weren't, it wasn't a visceral reaction to uh, a Reagan joke or a Bush joke or a Clinton joke. It wasn't, a, it wasn't as, uh, uh, the, the audience didn't mm. react in such a heartfelt way, put it that way, in an emotional response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my approach, these, so, but I fell into that as well. I, I was saying, here's my here's my point of view. Boom, you like it or leave it. And I had some I had some rough years there where people were they would take they would say leave it because they you know they as as things became more polarized, the audiences became more discerning and more unreceptive to things that they did didn't reinforce their worldview or their political party or candidate. So over the years, I have evolved in terms of how you talk to people. And it's amazing, Jordan, if you can leave out just people's names and just the labels, leave out Democrat, leave out Republican, leave out Obama, leave out Trump, leave out Hillary's name, right? You can, if possible, if possible, you or Biden, you can reach people just on the merits of what you're saying, more so than, you know, just hypothetically, you know, Joe Biden did this, isn't that great? All of a sudden, zoom, steel trap, steel, <laughs> you know, barrier comes down right, and they can't right. hear behind that. Or Donald Trump is this, right? All of a sudden, boom, it's, it's like uh, it sets off a visceral reaction with a lot of people. Yeah. But you could talk about the same issue and... Uh, you know, and 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 you can get a lot further in terms of the public, just encouraging them to listen to the rest of the story, the uh, rest of the joke or the premise. I know? really do believe, and I've talked, and I'm friendly with so many guys who who are in the comedy world, that there's a great deal of psychology, innate psychology, that you guys understand because you're up there in front of strangers in a strange place, telling jokes and hoping you can win them over an art form that very few people can appreciate, you know, the idea that you really have to know your audience and understand them. We're all going to bomb. I mean, we've bombed in radio, and I'm sure you've bombed on stage, but you learn from that, and you you have a good understanding of the audience. Yeah, absolutely, and you learn the hard way. I learned the hard way. I learned the hard way of doing a gig. Hmm. For example, I can remember, I think it was 2004, I was doing a, you know, the Gulf War was raging, uh, the country was really starting that split that we find ourselves in now. Kerry was running for president. I'm living in Massachusetts. I'm thinking everybody in the country is behind John Kerry. Not true. And I can remember doing a a, a, a gig in um, in D.C. and uh, you know, and I'm talking about whatever healthcare, or whatever, and the audience didn't like it. 
and they didn't like it and they uh were you know they wanted their money back they mm. felt like this is this isn't what we signed up for oh i remember what it was i was doing a show jimmy tingle for president the funniest campaign in history so around Massachusetts, it was working fine because we have a many of us have a, a similar mindset. You know, it's a largely Democratic state, et cetera. So, you know, and it's satire so people can laugh. However, you go to other states or you start doing corporate gigs around the country. They don't have that Cambridge sum of old Boston mentality. <laughs> it's a it's a different worldview. It is. It is. Know? And so that can really uh, take people by because they haven't heard that perspective before. The same way if somebody from down down south or whatever came here and they started doing a more center-right uh, performance, uh, a lot of people around here would not warm up to it really mm. easily unless it was really funny and they really won them over with their personality initially. Or It's all how you say it. Yeah. You ever hear that saying, Jordan? Uh, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Uh, no, but I'm going to steal it. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Sure. It's I love yours. it. I, I, I do have a, mean. but yeah. don't say it mean. I love that. I, I do have a, a point to make, though, about this particular region, Boston particularly, and, and you and I are both natives. We grew up here. There's mm-hmm. such a, uh, a sense of we talk the way we talk, we eat the way we eat, we think the way we think. If you don't get it, you're from outside. It's tough because, you know, we call soda tonic, some of us still. I mean, you know, yeah. we bowl with candle pin tiny bowling balls. This is a whole different kind of mindset here. And that brings me to my next question. When you went to 60 Minutes, which was huge, I mean, the world was talking about you, sort of the Andy Rooney next generation. Was that a culture shock for the for the nation to hear somebody with a Boston accent? How did it happen for you and how, did it, how was it accepted? There was... Yeah, it, the way it happened, I saw an article in the newspaper. I was in Los Angeles. I was doing a one-person show. I was on the plane back to Boston, and I, on the seat next to me, there was a USA Today. <clears throat> and I just picked it up and started, you know, how you see a newspaper on the plane, and I'm just looking through it. And there was an article that said 60 Minutes, the Sunday night show, was doing a Wednesday night show, 60 Minutes 2. And they had all of their correspondents. Uh, they had... They had Dan Rather, Mike Wallace, Ed Bradley, Molly Safer. Mm. They had some new people. They had Charlie Rose. They had Carol Marin. They had uh, a couple new faces. Bob Simon. Was Meredith it? Vieira. Was she one of them, I think, back Ooh. then? Was Meredith Vieira part of that team? No. She, I think she came later. But okay. there was, a, I think her name was Mayberry. I forget her first name. <clears throat> anyway. I saw this article and they said the only person they don't have yet is the Andy Rooney commentator. Mm. And I had been pitching myself to some of the Boston television and radio stations about doing one minute or two minute commentaries. And I would literally say like Andy Rooney. And when I was in L.A., I had been pitching myself to the networks out there. I want to do one to two minute commentaries like Andy Rooney. And um, there was no interest at the time. But however, <clears throat> I used to do a Friday afternoon segment with Jim and Marjorie, or Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, New England Cable News, every Friday afternoon. And I had started to tape these one to two minute spots. And I did one on parking tickets. And I was in front of the Cambridge Common with a parking ticket and in front of a parking meter. And I was doing the bit, you know. Uh, anyway. 
I called my manager and I said, Ray, send these guys the tape from New England Cable News. And so he did. And event, and they loved the tape because wow. it was so different. Yeah. And it wasn't polished. It wasn't, it was man on the street. It wasn't polished. It wasn't in the studio. It was, you know, and I wasn't, a, quote, a TV commentator. And I wasn't a journalist. So th they really liked it. Jeff Fager was the man who hired me. Uh, the executive director of 60 Minutes 2. Anyway, that's and that started a process of auditioning to do that job. Lightning in a bottle. It was you were at the right Lightning. place at the right time, and you already had the audition tapes ready to go, right? In a I sense. did. And the other thing, Jordan, it was it was about capitalizing on an opportunity, just connecting the dots. I want to do this. Here's this newspaper article. Let's make it happen. So it really came from my initiative calling the manager and everything and the reason i say that is because when i got the job i found out after the fact that every agency in america or every talent agency saw me on television and they're all going how did this guy get this job why weren't <laughs> our agents on it why weren't our managers on yeah. it we should have been submitting and they submitted a lot of the agencies submitted and jeff told me they looked at everybody. They looked at Gary Shandling. They looked at Seinfeld. They looked at wow. uh, John Stewart. They they had their pick of who they wanted mm. to do because it was such a unique spot. And they went with me. And I think part of the reason was I was not known. And so it was more of a thing that I could grow into. Wow. So, uh, so, yeah, it was a wonderful opportunity. Great, great Definitely. story. I want to shift a gear or two and talk about your personal life. Uh, you're a family mm -hmm. guy, but... You are open about the fact that you uh, had addiction issues and uh, I think it was drinking and you you have been clean and sober for decades now. And uh, mm -hmm. what kind of a difference did that make in your career and in your life at the time? Sure. Well, that made all the difference, really, because in the comedy scene and it's easy to say, well, entertainers drink too much. And my thing was basically drinking, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a, a, a cliche to say, oh, entertainments and they drink a lot of, the, you know, Hollywood and rock stars and all this, which is true. But the reality is it's everywhere, mm. every industry, you know, you know who else drinks a lot? Everybody. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, teachers, firefighters, police officers, radio DJs, television executives, uh, nurses, doctors. I mean, it's carpenter. I mean, it's, it's really very, very common. I just saw a terrible statistic, and the same with drugs. So, yes, it was when I got sober, I, I had been drinking long before I ever got on stage. And it was just kind of a way of life. You know, you grew up in a neighborhood and everybody drinks and, you know, it's uh, and but eventually it became a problem and I wanted to stop. And uh, I, I, I got some help. You know, I got some help and a friend of mine said, Jimmy, you know, if you ever quit drinking, you could do really well. And, uh, you know, you could do really well. And I, he gave me some instructions that I started to follow. And uh, I started hanging around with people who didn't drink. And that was a big, a big changer. And he also said, you know, stop. He goes, do you believe in God? I said, I believe that there probably is a God. He says, why don't you start asking God to help you stop drinking? And that mm. was a really... Like, really? Mm. <laughs> because I was an altar boy. I grew up Catholic. I believed intellectually, the theoretically, there probably was a God, but I wasn't, I didn't have a relationship yeah. with him. I never 
But he was saying, ask God to keep you away from a drink or a drug in the morning and then thank him at night if you stay away from a drink or a drug. So I started doing that, Jordan, and I just started to put together days and weeks and months and years. And it's it's been, the to answer your question, it's been life-changing experience. And, uh, and uh, there was no way I would be further in my career. There's no way I would further my career or my life if it wasn't for, you know, getting uh being mm. away from a drink or a drug you know i've i've known of you for decades and we've worked together here and there and i've we've interviewed each other and i've always found you to be great to work with but one of the things that i've noticed about you particularly you in this world is that you are a go-getter and a creative force you had your own theater for crying out loud we'll talk about humor for humanity in a minute You've always made an opportunity for yourself just going out there and doing it, even running for office legitimately in Massachusetts, Jim. Comment on, on your work ethic, because that's what's really propelled you to be such the success you are. Yeah, well, you know, Jordan, I played sports as a kid, and you know how that is, right? If you if you want to get good in basketball or baseball or any of the, any of the sports, you've got to practice. And I just, I was fortunate that I I learned how to practice. I learned how to practice basketball. I'm only five six, but I played Division One high school basketball at Cambridge Latin. But I was didn't have the natural talent that some of my friends had who were on the team who became all scholastic and got college scholarships. So I just had to work harder to make the team, to make the team, and then to eventually be the you know the starting player on the team. And that included. Going to I would I used to do all these drills, dribbling around with two balls and uh, dribbling around the handball court in the dark so you can't see the ball because I was a point guard. So you all mm. these drills to make yourself better in those skills. And I just transferred those drills, those skills really to to comedy. And you know, and also Barry Cremins was the booker at the Ding Ho, and I was the daytime bartender there. And one of the reasons I wanted to work there as the bartender was to be around the scene right. and learn the scene from the right. ground up. So I was the daytime janitor, bartender, doorman, and open mic performer. And I said, Barry, do you think you could book me here? And he goes, Jimmy, he goes, I have Steve Wright, Paula Ponce. He named like 10 people who were really ahead of me in terms of their effectiveness on stage. He said, if you, you know, why don't you start your own room? start your own room and he gave me the encouragement to and and the initiative to start uh you know finding a place that i could perform and host the show so i, I called a friend of mine mark mark haynes in watertown mm -hmm. he had a mm -hmm. pub called mark's pub and he said ting would love to do some comedy upstairs in the room it's not being used and so that just started a a whole way of making your own breaks it's, i love it, they call uh, it d DIY, do it yourself. Do it yourself. It makes so much sense on so many levels, uh, but very few people have the creative input, the stamina, or the uh, stick to itiveness. I mean, you're also a guy, comedian, well respected, who uh, has a Harvard degree. So, I mean, that's, that's something you don't hear every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> went back to well, school you know, a little later, didn't you? I did. I did. I went back to school in my 50s and I tell this on stage the great thing about going back to school in your 50s you get the student id and the senior discount <laughs> exactly. so it's excellent <laughs> but uh, yeah i about just been i've had a lot of interests you know I, I i follow politics i 
I was interested in politics. I was, I grew up in a semi-political family. I had relatives who were involved in Cambridge city government. One, one of my uncles was a city manager. Another uncle was the superintendent of schools. They were both grown up in that city and they just got into, they were Italian and they sort of represented the Italian constituency in the city of Cambridge and East Cambridge. So I kind of grew up with that, you know, but um, so I just paid, always paid attention mm. and I liked politics. That's why I kind of went in that direction in comedy. The thing about comedy is you find what you like and you find like what you're good at and you kind of go in that direction. Right. And so that's, that's what I, that's how I got into the, to the politics. Yeah. But going back to school after we had the theater, um, a friend of mine said, Jimmy, you know, you grew up in Cambridge and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard has uh, scholarships for people who uh, grew up in the city. Uh, you should you should check it out. She said they really love people from different walks of life, and you know you're different. <laughs> well, so I applied, and long story short, yeah, I was accepted, and I I couldn't believe it. I tell the story on stage. I said when I got that letter of acceptance in the mail, Jordan, I said to my mother and I said to my wife Catherine, I cannot believe this. After all these years of growing up in the city of Cambridge, I've actually been accepted to Harvard. And when I showed up for class on the first day, they couldn't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> I tease the fact that you actually did run for office for lieutenant governor. You were on the ballot. I voted for you, just so you know. Thank you, Jordan. And a lot of people did. But that was some yeah. serious stuff. You, were, you weren't just messing around. I mean, it was fun and you oh. brought attention to what you were doing. But what would you have done had you won? <laughs> you would have had to serve. <laughs> I would have served with honor and distinction. There you go. <laughs> you know, Jordan, the reason, the main reason I ran, there was a couple of reasons, but the main thing that was driving my campaign, and I just made a film about running for office. It's called Jimmy Tingle, Why Would a Comedian Run for Office? And it'll be out soon. Mm. It's a documentary. The main reason was the whole recovery issue. In, in 2018, when I ran, there were 54,000 overdoses nationally, okay? 54,000 overdoses. Last night, I was researching the, uh, what is the overdose rate now? Mm. And in 2023, there were 112,000 overdoses in the United States of America. That's mm. just opioids. That's not counting alcohol, car accidents, all that stuff. And so... For me, as one as a person who was fortunate enough to get help from various detox and rehab and and friends and and family and to be able to recover from alcoholism and addiction, to me that's like national priority number one personally because that affects you know talk about a unifying issue it affects blue states red states, you know, working class, wealthy, black, white, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it just affects so many people. And so tragically, mm. we're losing so many people. And I just feel it's a, very strongly, it's a national defense issue, really. And so anyway, that was like what was driving me. Because when I called the Cambridge City Hospital and said to the man who answered the phone in December of 1987, I really need help. This man said, you called the right place. 
And you very rarely hear somebody mm -hmm. in a cheery voice say, you called the right place. Wow. But story. when I ran for office, I said, I'm running for office in the state of Massachusetts to hopefully ensure that when anybody in the state of Massachusetts picks up a phone and reaches out for help, the answer on the other end always should be, you called the right place. Great so messaging. That was the main thrust of my campaign. Great messaging then and now more than ever. Let's talk about uh, humor for humanity. I love alliteration, two H words. What you're doing with it, what your goal is. I mean, God, do we need this. Jimmy, tell us more about that. Sure. Well, one of the things that when I was at the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard, I, I saw all these really bright people, really dedicated and committed people to just different different uh, walks of life, trying to make a better world, literally, trying to make a better United States and trying to make a better Europe and Middle East and all over the world. And, and very few of them were on radio or television or they weren't in entertainment. They weren't in the mainstream media. And I just felt like there's a way to help these people doing what they're already doing. So I came up with the idea of humor for humanity and our mission statement is humor for humanity, more than entertainment, raising spirits, funds, and awareness for nonprofits, charities, and social causes. Our mission is your mission. Humor for humanity, humor in helping, humor in healing, humor and hope. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> Great message there, too. And uh, I can just tell the audience uh, who, who may not be familiar with Jimmy on the local level here in the Boston area, constantly giving of your time for all kinds of causes. And uh, a lot of comics do. I think they get ignored for all the good work they do. But you've done a remarkable job. And all of this can be found at JimmyTingle.com. And one more thing. You're doing this podcast stuff now. You're interviewing – you mentioned Gary Gullman, who is brilliant. You're having fun talking to guys and gals in your sphere, in your world, and probably learning a lot from them. Yes. We uh, have interviewed Al Franken and uh, Louis Black, Gary Gullman, Paula Palmstone. And uh, we also do uh, Mark Marin, mm. who I know you know as a fellow podcaster, sure. the, uh, Colin Quinn. And these uh, comics that I grew up with, I mean, literally evolved with. We all started together in Boston and New York back in the day. And they're all doing great. And so, and I also interviewed... Uh, a lot of political figures, uh, Maura Healy and mm -hmm. Ed Markey and uh, people running for office, Andrea Campbell and uh, Diana DiZoglio and the people who are running for office as well. So I love com comedy and politics. And on the podcast, I tend to interview mostly uh, comics, politicians and authors. We had Jim Sullivan with his new book about uh, Backstage and Beyond, 40 Years of the Boston Comedy Music Scene. Have you talked to Jim yet? No, no, but I'm anxious to now that you mention that. That okay. sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you his contact. Put me in I'll, touch, I'll call yeah. him. Can I give him your number? Anything you want. My number, my email, right, whatever yeah. you want, Jimmy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so people like that, um, Priscilla Douglas, who wrote a book about woke. She's an African-American a uh, woman, very accomplished, worked in the Weld administration, and she talked about how Bill Weld was woke because he, he had a diversity of, of point of view mm. that we want to mix it up and we wanted people from all sorts of walks of life. And she really dispels the myth of woke has takes such a bad connotation now. And she was saying it really meant for African-Americans back in the 20s and 30s driving around the South just to be aware Mm. aware of what's around and the threats that are there. 
Um, she was great. But anyway, all, lots of people like that. And it's uh, been a lot of fun doing the and all that's at my website, jimmytingle.com. I have one more quick request. And uh, sure. this is not politically designed to tick anybody off one way or the other. But how about one Trump joke? Because, I mean, the guy is is <laughs> great material for any side of the issue. What's a current Trump joke that you're using these days? Well, I saw him last night. He won the primary, you know, in, in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And I know he's trying to unite the team, the Republican team. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to be a little tough given all the nicknames he's given people <laughs> over the last five years. Can you imagine this guy trying to get them? Okay, I want to get low energy, but Jeb, low energy. Come on, come on to the tent, low energy, Jeb. And where's little Marco? Little Marco, come on in, little Marco. <laughs> and where's... Where's um? What's he called? What's he? Uh, De sanctimonious. Yeah. Where's Ron De sanctimonious? Get him in here. You're on my team. Come on, Ron De sanctimonious. <laughs> and where's where's uh 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 Nikki the bird brain Haley? Where is she? Bird brain. He calls Nikki Haley yeah, bird brain. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. I think it's going to be very difficult for him to unite his party <laughs> around him given the animosity he's created with people in his own party, at least the politicians. I don't well, know about the base. Politicians are as funny as comedians. They just don't know it. Uh, <laughs> it's just a crazy thing. You sound and look amazing, and you're you're still out there making people laugh and bringing people together. And I want to thank you very much for, uh, for joining me on my podcast and to remind people that they can check out yours, jimmytingle.com. So thank you very much. Jordan, great to see you. Thank you so much for all the support you've given not only me, but all the Boston comics and the Boston comedy scene. Those spots you let us do and plug our shows and everything is, is so, so helpful. And I'm also doing commentaries on WBZ every Saturday and Sunday at 2.35 and 6.35 in the morning. So I want you folks to get up Sunday morning, 6.35, and listen to my 30, my one-minute podcast. Remember, That's- Sunday morning, 6.35 a.m. <laughs> We're colleagues. I still work there, too, and I, my stuff airs all over the place, and uh, I'm never sure where it's going to show up. Jimmy, all yeah. the best to you and your family, and uh, keep us laughing, my friend. Thank you so much, Jordan. Great to see you. Wonderful friend and a very funny man, Jimmy Tingle. Go to jimmytingle.com for all the details. And thank you, as always, for subscribing and downloading the podcast. Your ratings and reviews mean so much. And you can always find out more at jordanrich.com or chartproductions.com, where we produce this and many other podcasts. Till next time, remember, as always, to be well so you can do good. Take care. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.